The only school that teaches you about money is the school of hard knocks. Until now. You need to learn this business, and this is the time to do it. Become an insider. So you have to know the rules before you get in the game. Welcome to the Money MBA Podcast. Oh, have I got your attention now? Where you'll learn how to be a master of money. There's so many ways to make money today. Let me show you in two seconds flat why the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Now here's your host, Jonathan Katsmita. Welcome back to another episode of the Money MBA podcast. Today, I welcome my friend Harris Cuppy Kupperman. So this isn't exactly a quarantine session. Um, although I'm out of the hotel, I'm still somewhat in limbo. I'm currently in an Airbnb. But Cuppy did originally join me when I was in the hotel quarantine. However, during that time, he was in Costa Rica. The recording audio wasn't that great. We were having a couple drinks. Maybe the conversation could have been more precise. So we decided to do uh, another recording. So this is the 2.0 version of the Cuppy and Cutsmita quarantine session. Um, so Harris is very much a event-driven uh, value investor type of guy. Um, I really enjoy talking to him because he keeps things simple and he's really straight to the point, very uh, back of the napkin uh, type of thinker. And, and sometimes when you, when you talk to people in the investment world, in the finance world, Wall Street guys, they become almost too, how do I put it, um, too complicated for their own good in a lot of ways. And that's one of the things I appreciate about Cuppy is that you can really relate to how he's thinking and his overall investment process. Not that what he's doing is easy, but oftentimes he certainly does a good job of making it sound simple. Uh, I believe that's at least one of the things you're going to take away from this conversation. Um, I had a good Good time talking to Cuppy a second time. Actually, I enjoy hanging out and, and chatting with Cuppy whenever I can. But um, personally, I particularly enjoy this interview. I'm looking forward to listening to it a few times um, because not only does he share some of the things he's looking at, but I think he does a good job of giving you a sense of how he actually executes um, his investments, his, his uh, investment process, his research process. Speaking of research, he also... Um, teases a new product that he's putting together um, that will give just about anybody access to some of the event-driven research that they're they're doing on the inside. So I think you'll get a lot of value out of this conversation. I certainly did. So let's welcome Harris Cuppy Kupperman to the Money MBA podcast. All right, Cuppy, welcome back to the Money MBA podcast. Um, I wouldn't call this quarantine session, even though I still kind of somewhat living in a bubble, but we had you on, or you and I talked when I was in quarantine. And uh, I won't say that conversation went off the rails, but it was just more of like two dudes hanging out, having, having a couple of whiskeys. So it's a really bad sound connection. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You were in Costa Rica. I was in a hotel. So I figured we'll do a 2.0 reboot. Um, so here we are. Thank you for coming back on. I'm out of Happy. quarantine, but I'm still a bit homeless. I'm in an Airbnb and uh, might be a little noisy because I'm on a near busy road, but we'll make the most of this one just as we did last time. And so thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here. Um, as I was just mentioning to you offline, and one of the things that I wanted to accomplish with the podcast in the beginning was kind of give the, the average guy, the retail guy, 
a little bit of um, a dose of, of how Wall Street functions in a uh, more granular sense. You know, sometimes you get, it's just a lot of like 40,000 foot view ideas. And I, I don't think um, there's a lot of education in that when it's just narrative, the CNBC type of stuff. And one of the things, I mean, you as a person, I just appreciate you're one of the types of um, people that, you know, you're just a good time to be around, but you're also a really smart guy. And I think you do a great job of disseminating your ideas in, in a very storytelling fashion. Um, your, pod, your blog, Adventures in Capitalism, achieves, I think, in the written form, very much so what I'm trying to do with the podcast, which is you, you put a story around these themes and these ideas, and I think it makes it more palatable. It makes it easier for the person to connect with what you're talking about instead of just a bunch of charts and vocabulary that they don't, that they don't understand. I try, I try. Um, and in the end, you know, finance isn't the most interesting topic. You got to twist it a little and make it interesting. Spreadsheets are pretty boring. <laughs> well, where, um, where would you say we are at this point in some of your, in some of your adventures? You know, you, you had a, a, a huge year in, in 2020. Um, are you still looking to carry some of those positions? Are you taking some off? I don't, I don't know really where we want to start. I mean, politically, here we are on Wednesday and Trump was just impeached a second time. I'm not, you know, as, as the host, I should be carrying the baton, but I'm almost, I'm almost a little overwhelmed as to where we even start, where we even go. Let's, let's talk about the markets first. We do politics after. I don't want to upset everyone in the first five minutes. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. <laughs> um, you know, in terms of the markets, look, uh, you, you look at everything you start with, uh, the big picture. The big picture is that every central bank is printing. Every government's doing uh, fiscal. Uh, there's a lot of money sloshing around. And despite the fact that everyone's locked up and a lot of people lost their jobs and a lot of businesses you know, won't make it, stocks keep going up. <laughs> and that's because they keep printing money. Uh, I've called this uh, whole process Project Zimbabwe. Um, you think of Zimbabwe, it was a very uh, wealthy place in Africa. And by the end, the stock market doubled every day. And uh, there was no running water, there was no food. The stock market kept going up because that was the only thing you could do with your worthless Zim dollars. And so I, I think we're going to do something somewhat similar here. Hopefully we do it uh, Zim light as opposed to full on Project Zimbabwe. But I just think it's going to keep going up because the politicians don't have useful solutions. Uh, you know, there's a problem of too much debt. There's a problem of overregulation. There's a lot of problems. And they found the one thing that works, which is printing money and spending it because it's a crowd pleaser. And they're going to keep doing it and they're going to keep doing more of it because so far there haven't been adverse consequences. And so when you have that sort of uh, mental mindset or backdrop, uh, you want to be as long as possible. And you know, every, every question really is just, do I buy more? <laughs> and you know, the answer is usually yes. <laughs> uh, I did gross since the election. I missed out on quite a lot of performance. Uh, I'm not going to cry too much because I had an amazing year last year. It was one of my best years in a very long time. Uh, we had many multi-baggers. Um, I basically bought it relentlessly uh, the, 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 the bottom week in March and stayed long and just kept uh, adding more and adding more. Uh, you know, the, the great thing, you know, when you run a somewhat levered book, uh, you know, you could be 140 long and then the market goes up and now you're 125 because you built some equity. You just layer it on and layer it on because... I know we're going a lot higher. Uh, you know, from there, you, you say, what do I want to own? And 
I, I just want to own stuff that's going to do well with the inflation that's coming. There's a whole lot of inflation coming. And so, you know, I'm very asset uh, heavy sort of companies. Uh, I own a lot of Bitcoin because it's a Ponzi scheme and Ponzi schemes do well when they print money. Uh, you know, land companies, uh, housing is a big theme of mine. Uh, commodities are a big theme of mine. Uh, I just want to be in the stuff that's going to do well during Project Zimbabwe. And I don't want to be short anything. Great. Well, you did a wonderful job of kicking us off here. So Project Zimbabwe, I want to dive into this a little bit more because I think on the surface level, it, it's a very common sense idea. Um, everyone kind of knows Zimbabwe as this quintessential example of, you know, people pushing wheelbarrows around with worthless money. Um, and I don't even know what insane thousands of percentage inflation they have on a regular basis or annual basis. Either way, it's a great name for, for what it seems like a lot of developed worlds are embarking on. And at this point with a new administration, potentially uh, the U.S. as well. However, um, there's a, it feels like there's still a bit of tug of war, though. So I'd like to get your thoughts and your feelings on the idea of, again, the narrative is really easy to, to get behind. Like, okay, they're printing money. But are they really printing money, right? So it's, it's being monetized by the Fed. It's actually really just banking credit. Um, so it's not necessarily finding its way into the financial system yet. Fiscal certainly does that more so. And helicopter money to people via stimulus checks does that. But what are your thoughts? I mean, timing is, is a very difficult thing to do. So I'm not asking for timing, but what are your thoughts on the reality of, okay, the narrative makes sense, but, you know, QE, or at least the, the pushback narrative that QE is actually deflationary because it's absorbing this inventory of assets, of treasuries, of, of various bonds. And that's one of the reasons why you see interest rates going. Is interest rates really an indication of inflation at all? Or are they just, we in a new paradigm where you have inflation and low interest rates? Well, if you had a free market system and the Federal Reserve wasn't out there manipulating the yield curve, uh, I think you'd see interest rates start rising here. Uh, instead, they're going to hold interest rates down by, you know, printing money and buying bonds, which is what they've basically done. And eventually, like you said, it's going to make its way into the broader financial system, especially through the fiscal side. And that eventually makes its way into stocks and it eventually creates a lot of inflation because you have excess demand, especially when you have uh, governments, uh, global governments that are restricting uh, the supply of certain goods, uh, you know, whether it's environmental regulations or just general regulation. Uh, I expect we're going to see a lot of inflation. We haven't seen inflation yet in the sort of things that get the peasants all mad, you know, the, the price of wheat and tomatoes and stuff. But we have seen inflation in, you know, my asset basket, you know, my, my spending basket, which is you know, high-end uh, housing and, you know, stocks and bonds and you know, those sort of things have had huge inflation. Um, you know, if the bond price goes up, it's inflated. <laughs> so it's not, you know, it's not just the interest rate. Uh, you know, Bitcoin's up, uh, gold's up. Uh, the stuff I usually buy with my money's up. Um, you know, the price of tomato hasn't gone anywhere yet, or maybe it has, I just wouldn't know. Uh, but uh, it's going to eventually come there too. Um, and, you know, I'm mostly focused on what happens with uh, publicly traded securities and if they give everyone uh, $600 or $2,000, I mean, we, we saw this uh, last time, mostly filters into the stock market and a bunch of retail guys go out there and buy frauds. 
<laughs> I mean, long fraud is probably a good at business strategy right now as a hedge fund. I mean, you don't want to tell your partners that, but it seems to be uh, how everyone's making money these days. Uh, fraud equals alpha. Sorry. Fraud means alpha until they pull the rug on it, right? Will they ever? <laughs> I mean, I feel like things like Bitcoin are almost too big to fail now. Yeah, we'll get to Bitcoin here in a second. Going back to the idea of you know money printing flowing into these various assets, um, and that seems to be a big part of the social unrest, right? Because if if you can access credit and you have the wherewithal to actually buy these assets, you know you're you're having like you said the the, the best year in your career. Meanwhile, Main Street is unemployed, waiting in the line at a food bank. So you continue to have this kind of social unrest issue. Um, but also at the same time, if you're going to have inflation, you're going to see it in the bond market, which again was kind of my question and, and to your point, the Fed's kind of pinning interest rates like they have in the central bank has in Japan. But if they continue to, to print, um, eventually we would assume or we would think that the market is going to have eventually take control and interest rates are going to start to reflect this inflationary uh, potential outcome. And, and if they do that, it tends to have a tug of war on equity prices as well. Do you, are you hedging that risk at all at this point? Are you kind of looking at the, the, the potential interest rates go up and that, and that hurts equity prices or potentially causes a crash? Yeah. If rates go up, that's bad for equities. Uh, equities are, you know, at all-time highs in terms of valuations, there's really no precedent. Uh, but will bonds, you know, drop and rates go up? I don't know. I don't think so. I think the Federal Reserve will just hold the bond yield at a place where they feel happy. And even if bonds were to drop, it would be a slow process. Uh, in the end, every asset class is inflated because they keep pumping more money into it. I just don't see it change. And I you could be in a world like uh, Zimbabwe with runaway inflation, but you could borrow money at, you know, 1%. <laughs> you know, I think that's what's going to create all these bubbles in the end. So I guess at that point, the, <laughs> the argument would be to, to lever as, as, much, as much as you can. I mean, depending on what type of leverage you're getting. I mean, is, it, is this but really... Yeah. You just need the cash flow to hold on to it, whether it's equities or, you know, or, you know, real estate or whatever the asset is, you just need to see it through to the end. But if you can short 10 year bonds, which is basically what happens when you have a 90 LTV on a piece of real estate, you're going to do just fine. You can own it free and clear because in 10 years, the dollar will be worthless. You just need to, you know, be able to coast on through and pay your property taxes. So it's... That's a super interesting way of looking at this. I want to backtrack on that. So real estate, it's argued that it's this hedge against inflation. But really, I think even even better way of putting it is it's it's really shorting the treasury market, right? You're you're kind of playing this long game that rates stay stable and eventually go to zero to some extent, while at the same time the, the dollar is inflated away, i.e. inflating the, the debt away to almost nothing as well. Right. So, as long as you get a uh, fixed rate debt, you know, you don't want anything that you don't want to take the risk that they lose control of the yield curve and you know, interest rates explode. But if you can lock in 10 year or 20 year fixed rate debt, like, you'd be dumb not to. So with real estate in mind, what are some of the 
projects or investments that you're looking at that, you know, more or less um, illustrate that, that view? Well, I mean, we only do public securities. So, you know, you, you're somewhat restricted on what you can buy. Um, you know, my, my biggest position in my fund is a company called St. Joe. Uh, they're uh, one of the largest landowners in the state of Florida. Uh, it's all in this Florida panhandle, which is really growing quite fast. Uh, you're, you're buying really the, the prettiest part of the state of Florida. Uh, I think of it a lot like the Hamptons, uh, the guys from Houston and New Orleans and uh, Atlanta. I mean, that's the closest nice beach to them. And I remember being a kid, I, I, I was you know, from Long Island in New York and I'd go with my dad out to the Hamptons and back then in the early mid eighties, it was potato fields. There was really nothing there. And now, you know, that's the, you know, the most expensive part really of Long Island, but of all New York, you know, you look at 20 and $50 million homes. And, um, that's basically what the panhandle is today. Uh, they've developed a bunch along the water, but you go, uh, you know, a hundred feet back and still trees and all those trees would be chopped down and turned into McMansions and they gonna be $10 million McMansions. And, I want to be long that because a lot of people move in the state of Florida and, you know, coming like St. Joe, you're coming into uh, the assets about a third of, you know, what the liquidation value of the company is just the land itself. And they have some properties that are producing some cash flow, but it's really inflecting rapidly. You know, you look at realtor data, you look at home prices, the, the whole region is just going crazy because of a bunch of uh, societal trends, people leaving cities, people leaving, high tax states, people hiding from you know, the chaos and violence and the riots and all the stupidity. Uh, and I, I, I think a lot of people are going to keep leaving New York and going to Florida. And, you know, a lot of them come to South Florida just because you know, that, that's the major metropolis, but plenty of them are going to the Panhandle too. And uh, it's a great trend to be long. And I think you can put this one away forever. It, and is that kind of, um, you know, a, a broader evergreen theme, do you think at this point, or is that really just part of this project Zimbabwe, are you, are you looking for any kind of shifts in the trend that would make you change your mind on St. Joe's? No, I mean, obviously if something changed in the state of Florida, I, I, you know, it would change the thesis somewhat, but in the end, I think this is a very, very long-term trend. I mean, interest rates are going to stay low, which means you don't need a lot of capital to put up a home. Uh, property price is going to go screaming with inflation and uh, the value of the home is going to go up each year. And, you know, the financing cost isn't going to go up much. And so you can put a bigger home on it and it just creates more value for St. Joe. Uh, you know, meanwhile, you have a lot of other trends in favor there. And, you know, the company, I mean, what I do with my funds and we'll take a step back, we, we try to find uh, trends that we believe strongly in. Uh, it's best what a few trends intersect, like the St. Joe. Uh, we get there really early uh, at the inflection. You know, St. Joe had gone nowhere for 20 years. Uh, you know, I, I was actually spending time in the panhandle this summer. Um, and so I was able to talk to a lot of brokers and see what was happening in terms of the inflection and demand. But we, we get there uh, early. We get there really, really cheap because, you know, the, your whole downside and your risk is how cheap is it? Because if you get it wrong, you know, you want to make sure there's not a lot of hot, hot air beneath, you know, the price you pay and where it's going to drop to. So, you know, we, we bought our shares about $19. They're in the low 40s today. So we've more than doubled our money. But when we were looking at it, we're coming into this thing for 15 cents of the dollar of the land value. And you play it forward a year or two. I think I came into it for uh, a mid single digit cash flow multiple. And, you know, when you can buy something that cheap, it's creating that much value that fast. It's really hard to lose. And that's why we made it the largest position we have. Uh, you know, as these trends keep uh, snowballing, I think it's going to get better and better. It's this funny sort of dynamic in a way where, 
it's very chicken and egg when you look at a place like St. Joe, because, you know, people say, well, if I go here, you know, where am I going to go do my groceries and how many nice restaurants are there? And what happens if there's, you know, I get sick. So then, you, you know, it needs, you know, the hospital and needs the grocery store and it needs 10 nice restaurants. But the, you know, the, those guys don't want to come and set up because there's no people. So it takes a, a long time to hit this critical mass. But once you hit that critical mass, it just keeps snowballing and snowballing. We're at that inflection point now. And you know, that's why I'm so bullish. Uh, they're going to uh, launch the Margarita Bill, uh, the Jimmy Buffett's uh, thing. Um, they're going to do a giant mixed-use development. Uh, it's going to be in the tens of thousands of residential units. And that's going to bring a lot of people to the region and really uh, push us into overdrive. And that's what I'm you know, so bullish about it for. Do you have any price targets on it at this point? I mean, like you said, you were in at 19. It's in the 40s. Uh, is this thing, you know, Head it to the one hundreds. I think it's going to be a few hundred dollars looking out a few years. I mean, in the end, just to get to fair value gets you, you know, triple digits. And you know, I, I think the value is going to build up really fast here. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it gets into the thousands, uh, especially if you get a whiff of inflation. And in the end, you know, these sort of companies they really shouldn't trade at discounts to net asset value, given how how fast the value is growing. I mean, the market should be smelling forward a couple of years. It should be trading at a premium to net asset value. So I don't see why this can't be a few hundred dollars a share today. What, and, and you mentioned, look, you're, you're investing through the fund in publicly traded equities. But you're also a boots on the ground type of guy um, in, a, in, a, in a bit of a crazy entrepreneur in, in a certain way at times. But are you, two questions here. Are, are there other companies and equities that you're looking at as knock-on effects and also as a boots on the ground entrepreneur, are there things that you're kind of, maybe you don't have the bandwidth to get involved in, but you're just, you know, when you're there and when you're diving deeper into this St. Joe's idea that you're looking at me like, man, what an opportunity. Well, I mean, there's great opportunities in the state of Florida because Population growth drives everything in real estate. Um, now, in terms of boots on the ground, I spent five weeks this year in the Panhandle. It's my uh, fourth trip in five years, just to keep track of the position. I only bought my shares. I started buying it this summer, but uh, I've been keeping track of it for you know, four or five years already because uh, I, I knew it was cheap. The problem is there's a lot of cheap stocks out there, but until you have that inflection, until you get that tailwind, Nothing's going to happen. So I can look at it and say it's growing, yes, but it's not really growing fast enough to get anyone's attention. You know, now it's growing 50 to 100% a year. It's, uh, it's growing faster than most SaaS stocks. And SaaS stocks have the craziest valuations ever, and they're not growing as fast. And a lot of them aren't even profitable. In terms of knock-on effects, you know, I, I think you have this huge demographic change where uh, people are leaving cities right now. Uh, people are leaving various states, and they go to states where there's not a lot of housing stock. I think you're going to see huge amounts of development uh, take place. And one of my other largest positions, a company called Cornerstone Brands, they uh, make components for uh, single family homes and multifam. They, they do some commercial too, but it's uh, aluminum siding, and, you know, doors, and vinyl windows, and facade. It, it's not sexy stuff. It's not exciting stuff, but they've consolidated a lot of their uh, competition. And they're usually the first or second largest in their vertical. And, no, the, the demand is going crazy. They're, they're actually just limited by uh, production capacity. The demand's infinite at this point. And they have obscenely high returns on capital. It's north of 30%. They put a few turns of leverage on it. So 
you know, equities over hundred percent return each year and it's growing fast. And, you know, that's the sort of thing you want to buy. And you know, I came into that at a low single digit uh, cash flow multiple, like three, four times uh, looking forward a year. If you buy something at three times earnings and it's growing fast, it's, you know, it's hard not to get, it's, it's hard not to make a lot of money. It's, it's, you know, it's more than doubled for me this year. Um, that's the sort of thing we do. We, we, we find these uh, macro trends. And usually when you start bouncing around and, you know, you talk to people in, in management of one company and you start looking at what they're doing and what they're needing. And because, you know, if St. Joe is going to be supplying land and the home builders are taking that land and putting homes on it, you figure out what, you know, where the bottlenecks are because you get excess pricing. And there's a lot of cheap companies in this world, but you need, uh, you need tailwinds, you need growth. Otherwise they stay cheap. And the cornerstone has been cheap for a while because demand for housing just, hasn't really been there until this year. But, you know, in the end, I look for trends and I ride the trends. And I always jump off the train too soon because, you know, I just do. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I get the meat of the move or I try to. And then once I'm long, I try not to do anything too stupid. You know, it's really a question of, you know, let it happen and enjoy life. I, 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 you know, I, I find way too many of my friends that they worry, you know, what, what is earnings going to be? You know, let's, let's build a model. Are they going to beat by a penny? Are they going to miss? I don't really know. No one knows. It's guesswork. Who knows? You know, I, I know that the demand for, you know, aluminum siding is probably going to be really good next year. Is it going to be higher this year, you know, the next year? I don't, I don't know. But is it going to be really good? Are they going to make a lot of money? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, is it going to add value to the company? Yeah. Did I get them cheap enough that it doesn't matter if they miss by a penny? Yeah. So I'm going to do a lot of vacationing because in the end, once you're fully invested, uh, the worst thing you can do is sit in front of your screens because you're gonna make a mistake. You can second guess what's happening. You know, someone's gonna call you up. Oh, I heard this from this guy, or you know, the chart pattern looks like this. The, the worst thing you can do is find a, you know, a freight train and jump off the second station. You want to stay, you know, most away at least. And so, um, I find good trends. I find good companies, and I don't do all that much. <laughs> well, speaking of freight trains, it's Let's talk about Bitcoin. Um, so, I and I and I I pivot to that simply because you 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 make this reference of when you're on a freight train, you, you know, you don't want to jump off, you know, the second stop. It it's, seems to me that's kind of the the way things are going for for crypto, particularly Bitcoin at this point. It, it seems very early in terms of this institutional adoption and. You know, you often refer to it as a as a Ponzi scheme. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't know if it's it really truly meets the definition of a Ponzi. I mean, there's certainly um, there's actually Bitcoin there to be purchased and held. But can you develop why you're referring to it as a as a Ponzi and and maybe reinforce the point I was trying to make in terms of how you might see it as one of those freight trains that you want to keep riding? Well, the way I think about Bitcoin is that it's totally worthless. This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. I can't believe how much of it I own because it's so stupid. <laughs> but I own a lot of it. And the reason I own a lot of it is because when you look at it, uh, there's a fixed number of these things that will ever be created. Uh, very good chunk of them are owned by people that are religious about it. They're never going to sell or they've lost their wallets. They don't know how to sell. The true float, and I hate to use the term float because any one of these whales could at any point sell, but they haven't shown any you know, desire to for a long time. Um, the, the true float is about 6 million of these coins. Um, 
And there's a couple of these uh, entities, I call them the QCIPs, but you know, you have Grayscale, you have uh, pretty much every country has a publicly traded vehicle at this point that does a, an offering of some type and issues uh, shares and buys more coins. And what they're doing is they're uh, just constricting the flow. You know, Grayscale has like a half million coins now or something. And every day they buy a few thousand more. And so if you keep uh, restricting the flow and, you know, uh, event, you know, the, the free float that's left over, uh, you can kind of manipulate it because there's just less trading needed to push it to a new price. And that's what we're seeing. We've seen a lot of hedge funds. We see now you see like the fidelities of the world uh, jumping in and, you know, they're going to go out there and raise billions more. You can't really spend billions of this asset class because, you know, while it's approaching a trillion dollars of value, uh, you know, the average daily trading, you know, it looks like a big number, but it's just the same coins going back and forth. It's, it, it's that free float that's moving around. And so as they constrict the float more and more, it just keeps pushing it higher. And, you know, I think it's going to keep going higher. I mean, it doesn't really make any sense, but now you see, you know, value investors and people who are serious individuals looking at this and saying, I, I need to own it because if they don't own it, they're going to underperform their benchmarks. I mean, it was the most interesting thing to do in uh, global macro last year and almost everyone missed it, you know? Uh, so it's kind of crazy to think, but now all the global macros guys said, well, I need, you know, a couple hundred bips. If Paul Tudor's going to do it, I got to do it. And so uh, they're all doing it. And, you know, all these guys grabbing a hundred, couple hundred million worth of Bitcoin, it, it, it's pushing it higher. It's going to keep pushing it higher. I just think it goes higher. It's not going to make any sense. It's absolutely insane, but it's kind of like a Ponzi scheme. The guys who got in earlier are slowly going to cash out and a bunch of QCIPs going to end up as the bag holders. And I'm going to get off way too soon on this one because I know that on the way down, it's just going to go no bid. So all these entities are going to be sellers and who the hell wants to own this thing? <laughs> yeah, I, I look forward to actually taking that clip as a segment and putting it on Twitter. Um, <laughs> it's like leaving honey for the bees, man. They're, they're going to come zooming in the lap that one up and 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 certainly come at you with their stingers oh they always do they always do the things that get people pissed on uh what, what it's like religion politics bitcoin and tesla like the four things that <laughs> get everyone all mad on twitter <laughs> yeah well we might cover all four of those here before we're done i want to backtrack um so saint joe's is super interesting and you know, one of the reasons I asked about some of these other knock-on effects is because, you know, the, the more I talk to you, the more I'm around you, it, it's not like you're just putting your hand in a bag and pulling out a name. It really is, this, like you're saying, you're spotting or identifying these trends, and then you're, you're kind of diving in deeper. Would you say you start with something like, say, a St. Joe as, as an investment idea or theme and work out from there? Or do you start with kind of a macro observation, which in this case would be, say, Project Zimbabwe, and then say, okay, if they're printing money and, and I feel it's going to be this you know, ongoing loose policy type of environment that leads to a Project Zimbabwe, you know, where should I invest? Again, kind of back to the point you made earlier, it's a bit of chicken or the egg. But how do you typically approach it? I usually approach it quite honestly, look at the macro trend and then figuring out, you know, what ticker symbol gets me there, where I want to be. 
I, in my brain, I've got thousands of these companies and I kind of have a sense of who's doing what. And, you know, I see a trend and I can, within a couple of days, kind of zero in on how I think to play it. And you know, a lot of it's just sitting there with some friends over beers trying to figure out, you know, what gives me the most leverage with the least downside. Uh, you know, with, with the least downside being the, the key part, not so much the most leverage. But it, it's really got to find the trend. I mean, St. Joe is just so rare because multiple trends converge in one place. You know, a lot of the other trends are, you know, you, you just get one trend. Um, you know, like agriculture is big this year. It's doing very well. So you buy companies tied to agriculture. Uh, lumber went straight up because there were shortages. So I bought Blue Links and tripled them out. Um, you know, I, I like tracking commodity stuff because there's an odd thing about commodities where everyone's cued into the price of gold or they're, they're cued into the price of oil, but no one's really following the price of lumber. And even if they're following the price of wheat and corn, there's a ton of these ag names that have just been huge laggards. And you, know, you can come into them today and they're pricing these things out like uh, agriculture pricing hasn't moved yet. And maybe the equities are saying that the price of ag is going to retreat and maybe the equities are right. But you, you kind of have a free look at, hey, you know, ag prices are up a ton and these guys haven't moved anywhere yet. And, you know, they're the same prices when ag hadn't yet moved. So, you know, I'm not really taking a lot of risk, I don't feel like. Plus, when you look at the individual companies, they, they seem cheap. And that's kind of how I set up a lot of the stuff I do. I, I like looking at uh, the second and third tier commodities that, you know, guys in the commodity pits, they're, you know, the CTAs in the world, they're, they're focused on these things. But then they don't really, you know, take the next leap and say who benefits in the equity world. And the equity guys, you know, don't really talk to the commodity guys. And you have this gap. It's usually a couple of weeks, maybe it's a month or two, but there's a gap. And then, you know, that, that gap in time lets you make a lot of money. You know, it's just amazing to see, you know, lumber hit all-time highs. It, it was up limit like weeks in a row. And Blue Links, who's a two-step distributor of lumber products, didn't really notice it. You know, and then one day Blue Links kind of tripled. And like, you know, management basically had a press release and they're kind of like, our earnings are phenomenal. And Blue Wings tripled. They sold it. it it's just, um, it's interesting to watch these sort of things. I mean, I, I would have loved if, uh, you know, the, you know, some of these trends, you have three or four macros at the same time, but oftentimes you don't. So you get in, you get a big quick score. It's an inflection investment. Then you go out and do the next one. So you're, is this, is this cuppy style or is this what you would think? value investors should be doing you know have you kind of created a unique process for yourself or is this something that you've this approach this way of thinking about you know looking under the hood is this something you you know kind of developed by following value investors before you because it's it almost sounds intuitive but there's also the argument that value is dead and, and maybe that's because people aren't doing it right well, value is dead if you think about it in a way, if you think about it in the wrong way. You know, I've been following Blue Links. You know, they, they did a really large merger. They over leveraged themselves. They integrated it horribly. Uh, I've been following it because it's always been cheap for a long time. But, you know, cheap stocks stay cheap until you have some sort of catalyst that unlocks it and changes the dynamic. And, you know, it was a bad merger that was muddling its way along. and. You know, Matt, the story wasn't really that attractive. And then lumber prices went crazy and then it didn't really matter how badly they fumbled the merger. You know, they were just making a fortune and Wall Street couldn't ignore how much money they were making. And you know, I think it's a mistake. A lot of my friends, you know, they, they keep saying this is really cheap. Don't, doesn't everyone else understand they're cheap? I say, yeah, it's cheap, but you know, the revenues are sort of comping negative. The earnings are comping negative. 
yeah, there's a lot of asset value. Yeah, there's brand equity, but who cares? You know, the next quarter is going to probably be equal to plus or minus 5% from the last quarter. There's nothing to change anything, you know? And then something eventually comes. I mean, look, look at agriculture. I'm a company uh, called Cressu. They, they, they own uh, hundreds of thousands of hectares of agricultural land in South, uh, South America. Uh, yes, it's Argentina for a lot of it, but you know, in Argentina is where money goes to die. <laughs> but if you look at a chart of uh, Cressud, uh, every five, 10 years is a good agricultural cycle and the stock is like a 10 bagger. And then, you know, the facts of Argentina usually overtake the, you know, the facts of agriculture, especially because it's a cyclical commodity. But when you have a good run, it's a really good run in this stock and they've turned out their debt, have enough, you know, runway, Argentina can still come screw me. But in the end, I own it. It's already up 25% in a month. It's great. Uh, you know, and as long as soy and wheat and corn are doing great, it's probably going to keep doing great. And then eventually they're going to announce earnings and everyone's going to be like, oh, wow, they're really making a lot of money. And then, you know, the land value is going to go up and then it's not going to look so levered. And then it's going to make a lot more money. And then everyone's going to chase it because the chart's going to look right. And I've seen this cycle. And then, you know, once you have three consecutive good quarters, the computers say this is now a trend. And then it becomes a you know a growth stock and becomes a compounder. It goes the full uh, spectrum from deep value to compounder stock, and then the price of you know soybeans drops or Argentina does something asinine and the stock drops seventy percent. And so you know the, the point is get in there at uh, trough pricing in valuations. Get in there when things are going well. Wait until the chart. Uh, I'm not much of a chart guy. I think. Most chart guys kind of dumb. They, they, they look at something and they draw lines after the fact to prove a point. But you know, you don't want to buy something that's making new lows. You want to at least let it build a base and start showing a little bit of strength because that means other people agree with you. And then just buy a bunch. And you know, I check the price of soybeans each day. It's not rocket science. And I own this. And you know, maybe when uh, COVID's done, I'll go visit my farm in Argentina. Or probably not. But <laughs> the whole point is. You know, I, I try to take about five shots on goal each year with a macro trend. I usually do it with two or three ticker symbols per trend because uh, I want to be a little diversified because management teams tend to be, you know, incompetent and criminal. And uh, the, the goal is to land two of the five shots you take on goal. Two of them, you kind of get it wrong. You know, the price of soybeans drops, I get my money back plus or minus 10%. And one, you kind of bomb. But even when you bomb it, maybe you lose 20% because you bought so cheap and you know, the, the winners, they're supposed to be three and five baggers. And, you know, 2020 was phenomenal because I had about 10 shots on goal and I missed two. Well, eh, basically I missed one and I had two or three break-evens, but it was a great year. Uh, I hope this is many opportunities this year. Unfortunately, I'm sitting with a bunch of cash because I can't find anything that's really cheap right now. But it, you know, the strategy remains the same. And, you know, going back to your question of a value investor, it's like, I think people just sit there in cheap stocks. I mean, this this pursuit has been cheap for a decade. You know, everyone knows they own the land. It just didn't matter. Yes. Awesome response. There's a there's a ton to unpack there. Um, not that I'm gonna do that here with you right now, but for people to re-listen to that, there's lots of little nuggets you dropped that I think people can take away and and hopefully implement to some extent into their own process. Just so we don't lose anybody. Um, explain what you mean by a bagger, a two, three, four, five, ten bagger. Um, make sure everyone's on, on par with your vocabulary. Okay, so uh, a three bagger is a tripling, a five bagger, you know, you made five times your money. 
Um, I feel like way too many people in this investment world look at a stock at $10 and they think it's worth 13 because they built a really fancy spreadsheet with, you know, you know, those spreadsheets with 10 tabs that, you know, like I, I've never seen a 10 tab spreadsheet ever make me money. Uh, the easiest spreadsheets are, you know, four cells, six cells. You have two inputs and you're done. Um, but the guys who go out there and look at a $10 stock think it's going to 13. Random noise could send it to 13 just as easily as it could send it to seven. Uh, I just don't think you have any edge there. I, I like the stock at 10 that I think is going to 50. Because you need one of those right each year and it makes up for all your mistakes. And now value investing, you just can't buy it cheap. You have to buy it so that it's so cheap that you have a huge upside if you get it right. So that's, that's just conceptually. Gotcha. Now, what's interesting here is going with the flow of this conversation and and some of the questions I've asked you. So you've got this philosophy about how you approach value investing. And we talked about some of the things that you're um, bullish about St. Joe, for example, but the one of the points you're making here is a lot of these things can are cheap and can stay cheap for a really long time. The timing has a lot to do with it, but it's, there needs to be an event, something that triggers it. And this leads me to my next question, which is event driven, opportunities are one of the things you're really focused on right now. And you also had said earlier that sometimes you have a thousand of these running around in your head. Well, fortunately, from what I gather, you're starting to now put these down on, on paper and sharing it with people. So talk a little bit about kind of your event-driven process, as well as um, some of the information that you're, you actually are now compiling and, and looking to share with people. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the, the, the real sexy stuff is the stock you buy that goes up 10 times. Unfortunately, it's just you get one or two shots a decade at something like that. Uh, most of the time, I like to keep extra capital around because you never know when something interesting happens. And that extra capital gets deployed in event-driven. Uh, event-driven is usually short-term trades, somewhere between a couple of days to a couple of weeks, rarely more than a month. It's usually something with a catalyst, and it's usually some sort of event tied to fund flows uh, or some sort of corporate event. Um, what's happened in the world over the past decade is that passive has taken over from active, which means that when uh, an ETF has to do something, there's no one to take the other side of it and provide liquidity anymore. Plus, the ETFs just have become so much bigger. And as a result, a lot of these uh, event-driven sort of things uh, I've just been doing amazingly well for us lately. Uh, the thing I, I, want, I want to point out on event-driven is that you're, you're basically playing the laws of numbers. Uh, no one trade should ever move the needle. I usually have 20 or 30 of these things on at a time. Uh, some of them, you know, I'll play a little bigger. But for the most part, you're just betting that dude, the odds are in your favor because of some corporate events. And um, I spent a lot of my time on this for a smaller piece of our book. But the returns are infinitely better than uh, you know the, our long book right now, and, and like I said, it's because of this uh, passive taking over the world. You know, the, the things we look at are you know ETF deletions and uh, spinoffs and you know, those sort of things. Uh, it's bread and butter. But then you have other stuff that really isn't looked at, and this is why I I hired a good friend of mine to start um, keeping track of this stuff because you got to manually compile it. You know something like CEO change. Uh, you know, there's no database keeping track of this, but let, let me walk you through how it's supposed to work. You know, you have a stock that's down 70, 80% over five years. The, the business probably has been suffering, but, but the core of the business isn't 
broken per se. It's just uh, needs to be reimagined with a new guy. Uh, and you have that press release always. It comes out like on Tuesday morning, and it says, you know, CEOs left the building effective immediately. One of the board members will take over as interim seat. You know, we hired Corn Ferry to do a you know CEO search, and you know the stock drops like twenty percent. <laughs> and they hire the new guy, and you know the new guy immediately blames the old guy for everyone. They take a bunch of big bath charges. They set expectations so low that they can't miss. Because usually they're going to set their stock options at this new lower price, but you have a guy who's young and hungry who usually comes in with a different view and most importantly he's got stock options set at today's price so he's very well incentivized to get the share price up in the short term and he's gonna try to figure out where there is to change things i mean let's talk about gamestop because it's a perfect example of this everyone wrote it off for dead it, it might still be dead i don't know but a new guy took over they had had a bunch of ceos over a five-year period a new guy came in he figured out where to cut costs he unlocked a bunch of working capital and inventory. He closed a bunch of stores that are underperforming. They're going to try to do something digital. I don't know if it works or not. But, you know, this was a $4 stock when this guy took over. And, you know, today we had a supernova short squeeze and, you know, it was in the 30s. Uh, and that all happened in about nine months. Uh, I met him a few weeks after he took over. I went to the ICR conference. And I went there not expecting much talking to him. And I came away pretty impressed. He seemed like a good block and tackle guy, which is what GameStop had been missing for a while. Um, and they don't always work this well, but when they do, it's it's really good. <laughs> but this is why we keep track of these sort of uh, corporate events. And this is event-driven. You don't know what's gonna happen. Sometimes the new guy is worse than the old guy, sometimes better, but something's changed and it's not reflected in the price. And you know, there's an opportunity to go in there and see what's changed. Because it normally takes, even, even a really good turnaround is gonna take a few quarters, but you can start eyeballing it and see, are they doing what they said they're gonna do? Are the results proven out? And usually Wall Street's kind of forgotten about the thing. And so there's just a ton of opportunity. And that's why we, we started tracking these things. Uh, there's about 20 strategies I want to keep uh, on top of. Um, there's about another 20 that we're looking to onboard and uh, we just need to hire some more people. <laughs> but uh, for now, at least, uh, I've launched a, a data service. It's called a Cubby's Event Driven Monitor. Uh, you can go uh, look it up at uh, kedm.com. Uh, it's free right now. Uh, we, we've got some uh, bugs on our side we need to work out, but uh, I've made a fortune off of this data. Um, and I've been sharing it with a lot of my friends and they've been making a fortune. And you know, I, I, by sharing it, I get a ton of feedback, which is great for me because I'm making me more money. Because <laughs> you know, they, they find stuff I miss or you know, they, they help critique some of it. But uh, eventually we're gonna charge for it just because I wanna hire a few people and I'm not here to subsidize your research project. But um, I, I think it's a great thing. If right now when it's free, you know, you'd be dumb not to, you know, sign up for it because, like I said, we've been flagging stuff like GameStop for weeks and weeks, basically since we started the product. So KEDM Cuppies Event Driven Monitor .com, KEDM. Yeah, the name's right. not great, but I mean, this summer we started with an Excel spreadsheet. Hey, it's a, it's a four-letter yeah. domain. It's that's that's your next business, just buying and investing in. Event-driven domains. We actually bought the domain for like it was two, three thousand dollars. But we, no, I was sending it to like five friends the Excel spreadsheet, guys who are really active in the event-driven world. And every week, about ten more people would be, "Hey, Cuppy, I heard this guy got it. Can I get on the list?" And then it became a PDF because it was just easier to send it. And <laughs> I don't know. You know. We'll see where this goes, but I'm really excited about it because uh, you know. You, 
I've been doing this for 20 years on the event-driven side, and I'd always miss stuff. It was always, oh, shit, that was this week? Or if I had known about that, if someone had told me that this thing was getting privatized, of course I would have played it. And um, now it's my own fault we missed something because it's right there. I mean, I just got to read the stuff put out by my analyst. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, that, and I think it's important to make clear to people this, this data in a consolidated form doesn't exist. Like, you can't just click a button on Bloomberg and, and, you know, and get these event-driven things that are coming up on the calendar. And that's one of the number, number one reason why it takes some human, you know, it takes manpower to get in there and actually aggregate the data because it's at this point, there, there's no source where you can just go and, and, and get it in, in, one, in one quick, except for Cuppy's event-driven monitor. Yeah. And we intend to add a lot more of these uh, data series. Like, I think the thing that's held us back is early on, I hired a good friend of mine who's a very smart guy, and I figured he'd figure it out in about two weeks and have all this data. You know, Here's a list of the stuff I want. Just populate the spreadsheet and happy days. And here we are you know, nine months later, and um, I've realized how hard it is to get the data because a lot of the data comes out buggy or you have to just put a lot of manual effort into each little piece of the information. And, you know, every week is more information, just keeping up on it. It actually turned out to be a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. That's why we were hiring some more people. But I've just made so much money out of it. I'm really happy I did it, just systematizing the thing. That's awesome. And, and I want to put some context behind this because this is really event-driven, you know, without going into your 20-year your history, is, is really at the core of what's made you a successful investor. It's kind of where you sharpened your teeth and really got started in the beginning when it was, I believe, was the uh, IPOs and some of those things that you're shorting early on in your career. Do you want to add some insight into that? Because I think this is, it, it just shows the value in the fact this isn't just just random data, right? Like you have a career of doing this. It's taking you this long to realize that, you know, holy shit, we should make this a lot easier on ourselves. And as a, as a result, you're certainly making it a lot easier for other people. But I, I want to give some context. This is um, this is a space and, and a, an investment approach that is really at the core of what you do. Yeah, I mean, let me, I guess, tell you a story. Uh, back in 2019, what was it, uh, 1999, I opened a brokerage account with $6,000 in it, which I basically what I'd saved up that summer cleaning pools. And I was uh, in college and I lost about half of it because I had no idea what I was doing. I thought I understood investing, I'd read a bunch of books, but I didn't know what I was doing. And a lot of it was me shorting tech stocks that made no sense and getting run over and stopping out and trying it again. <laughs> uh, and I eventually noticed uh, just pattern recognition that uh, these uh, internet stocks, they do an IPO at like $10. It would open at uh, $100 and close the first day at $200 because they'd only IPO 3 million shares, even though there'd be tens of millions of shares outstanding. And they did this so they could manipulate the share price higher. And then what would happen is they'd have a lockup. And a lockup is when uh, restricted shareholders, mostly venture capitalists and employees, are allowed to sell. And back then, it was almost always 180 days after the day of the IPO. And I noticed that once these guys were allowed to sell, tens of millions of shares would get sold it, it, on a stock that didn't really trade all that much, didn't really have much flow, didn't really, I mean, it, it would be a multi billion dollar company, but the price was fake because it was being manipulated uh, higher because there weren't a lot of shares outstanding. And so the stock would be $200 and this thing would be $30 uh, two weeks later. 
uh, just everyone would sell. Because the venture capitalists, you know, of course they'd rather have $200, but they also knew it was worthless. And, you know, their cost basis was a nickel and they just wanted out as fast as they could. Uh, you know, they, they knew well enough that 18 months later it would run out of cash, which is really what happened with a lot of these things. And so I started noticing that you could short these a week or two before the unlock and you can make a lot of money. And I started doing that and I played a bunch of these and I, I turned my three or $4,000 by you know, the end of the year uh, into a few hundred thousand dollars. You know, just, just compounding is the most amazing thing that could happen. And uh, I was pretty proud of myself because uh, I didn't really have any money before that. And everything I have today came from uh, playing unlocks. And I spent a lot of my time in the following years just looking for these sort of patterns. And you know, a lot of the patterns are, uh, you know, it's corporate events that we talked about with CEO change. But the most lucrative stuff is fund flows where someone has to do something or someone wants to do something. And they're sometimes not very, you know, price sensitive. They just want to get it done. And if you get in front of that, uh, especially when it's some ETF, some passive vehicle that you know has a formula which says, you know, do this and ignore the share price because we don't really care, you're going to make a lot of money. And so, you know, over time, I've just started following more and more of these strategies. And you know, they'll work for a bit, and then they stop working, and then a different one will work because there's a lot of guys out there that know this stuff and they'll hedge it out. And you know, you'll, you'll see like an unlock where guys get short weeks before they get short tens of millions of shares and the unlock happens and a lot of shares trade for a week or two, but the price is really constant. But then even now we've seen some of these unlocks, especially the SPAC ones, which have been, you know, stocks drop by half, stocks drop by two thirds, because uh, there's just no one to take the other side and short that many shares because, you know, the SPAC is 20 million shares and 200 million shares went out. You know, you just can't short enough shares to offset that and hedge that out. And, you know, one of the things we're working on right now in terms of uh, Kenem is, ways to track these uh, SPAC unlocks. And it's one of those things that I told you was diff more difficult than I thought it would be because if you look at a cap table, you know, you can look at it and just say, here's shares, here's, you know, A shares, B shares, warrants. But you have to really look at it and say, here are guys in the pipe round, here are guys a uh, 90 day lockup, 180 day lockup, if then lockup, which says if the share price is above this price from, you know, day 90 onwards, then, you know, this unlocks. There's so many variables that you can build a whole spreadsheet to keep track of each little block of stock, but each little block of stock is going to move the share price. And if you know you're, you're in a world where not a lot of people are tracking these sort of things, uh, there could be some real surprises. And you know, I, I like surprises because you know if I already know about it, then it's not a surprise to me. And so you know, we're trying to build this sort, sort of stuff internally, and I don't know anyone tracking this either. Um, but we've been making a lot of money on it because we've queued in on individual names, but. Doing this systematically, you know, that's that's a manpower thing, but there's just huge amounts of alpha and all these funny things. And um, I don't know. I, I I think event driven is never the core of anyone's strategy, but you know, I have extra capital right now, and so we're going to put it into the event driven until we find something else to be long. And uh, I'm amazed how much event driven is making for us right now. It's not supposed to always be this good. Well, you had a good 2020. It sounds like you're gonna. Most likely, knock on wood, um, break that year as well. So we'll. Um, it's been good. <laughs> yeah, KEDM Cuppies Event Driven Monitor. So before we move into something, uh, it's a bit more just conversational, i.e., politics. What uh, is there anything else that you want to kind of mention as far as what you're doing, things that you're looking at? You know, obviously you've got your your eyes on a lot, 
but is there any one that's topical that we didn't talk about that you kind of want to mention just even even just for street cred to say hey i told you so six months from now there's a lot of stuff i'm long but i mean it's, it's gone up a lot from where i bought it you know i was buying energy uh spring and summer last year uh then they started uh drilling finally again in the united states with so what energy services in the, you know november december period um you know a lot of what i do isn't very uh Difficult, find trend, buy company, you know, and then watch the trend. I'm always amazed how many people come back to me and say, wow, Cubby, I can't believe, you know, you bought energy services stocks and they all tripled. And, and I'd say, well, have you watched the rate count? Like, how could you not buy energy services? They were doing no business in the summer because, you know, no one was drilling. Now it's recovering. Like, how could you not buy it? Um, and you see all these sort of things, and it's, it's always surprising that people are surprised that you know I was playing. But it doesn't mean I don't get them wrong. I have 20 years of battle scars, but a lot of it's just reading the news and then figuring out what ticker. <laughs> so do you? And I think I kind of said this to you before um, in previous conversation we had. Do you feel like, to a certain extent, you've just gotten really good at catching a falling knife? Well, I don't like catching falling knives. That's a way to get hurt. Um, these things always okay. overshoot, especially with the fund flow. So 10 years ago, it wouldn't overshoot because you'd have actual value investors that would look at something making new lows. And they just, you know, there was a big fund and they'd buy 50,000 shares every dime down, whatever the scaling they're using. And so they'd cushion the, the decline and then you'd have, you know, it'd stop going down. Now you have a situation where something's going down, becomes smaller in the index, which means the index has to sell some of it which means the value investor gets redeemed, which means he has to sell some, which means the index has to sell. It's this weird circular thing that kind of feeds on itself and takes uh, on the way down and on the way up to uh, extremes that are quite crazy. So what you really want to do is wait till it stops going down. Wait till it makes some sort of base. And there's lots of little base patterns. And like I said, I'm not a chart guy, but you, know, you have a downtrend and it breaks the downtrend or it makes a saucer, or it makes a W, whatever the you know you want to call it. What you don't want to do is buy something making new lows. Like that's how you get hurt. Um, I've done that too many times. I, I know how to get hurt. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, look, man, I, I tell you what, that I've had a lot of a lot of cuppy time. I've been around you a fair amount, um, usually with a a cocktail in my hand. And this conversation's been great because it's it's definitely it's filled in some some blanks for me or, or really smoothed off some of the edges of, of what you do and how you think and how you approach this. So uh, I really appreciate that. Um, now, moving into, I, I want to ask you about politics, but not so much, you know, copy, give me your, your opinion type of question. You're more welcome to do that. But um, you, you were sitting in cash at the end of the year because of really the uncertainty the, the political landscape was creating. Now, here we are in a day where, okay, the Georgia runoff is over. Biden's, um, you know, all the electoral votes have been certified. He's the new president, new administration. Um, they hold the majority. Project Zimbabwe is going into, going to go into overdrive under, under his watch. Trump's impeached for the second time. You know, feel free to share your thoughts on it, but also more more so, you know, how are you putting this in your pipe and smoking it, right? Like, how are you, how are you approaching this now? Is it, is it, has the, the uncertainty or the volatility 
kind of shown where it's going to fall at this point? Are, are you ready to deploy some of that capital? Or you think this, this is just getting started? Well, IG grossed in October. I thought there'd be some craziness, some chaos. I didn't really know what to expect. I just didn't think this election would go without a hitch. And I took my exposure way down. And uh, I sat there in cash for quite a while. I had my core book, but I kept it a lot of cash because, you know, dodging uh, disasters is usually the smart thing to do. I, I like to have cash when everyone else is panicked. And that's how you make the most money. It, the weird thing about the stock market is that the vast majority of the time, everything's sort of kind of fairly valued. You know, if you take a market multiple, everything kind of clusters around that market multiple. And you can argue with the market multiple, but it's all sort of fairly valued-ish. And there's some outliers on the top and the bottom, but for the most part, it's fairly valued. And then every couple of years, something crazy happens in one sector and it gets out of kilter and you can make money in a sector. And about once every decade, the whole market goes crazy and you can make money everywhere. And that's, you know, that's when we saw this March and I made a lot of money. But I only got to make a lot of money because I had a lot of liquidity, so I was able to buy the bottom. And times like now, we're, we're at historic extremes in valuation. Um, I'm less excited to just be long, long. I mean, of course, I'm long some projects in Zimbabwe. It's kind of a fine balance, but um, I'm keeping a bit of room. But I, I took the exposure way down into uh, the election. And then when it wasn't clear who won, I kept my exposure way down. I missed a lot of upside. I'm kind of annoyed. But like I said, I had a great year. Um, but, but then after, you know, they stormed the Capitol, it was pretty obvious that, uh, the, the election was over and I regrossed, uh, I mostly regrossed through my event-driven book. It's just easier to take it on and take it off. Um, but I, I've regrossed and it's, you know, directionally long, uh, gross exposure. Um, in terms of the election, uh, I, I told people I thought it'd be mind-numbingly stupid and it, <laughs> it, it didn't disappoint. <laughs> Um, I, I think they're both pretty terrible uh, candidates. Uh, I'm amazed that in a country of over 300 million people, uh, they're the best we can do. Um, I'm a pretty centrist person. I, I lean libertarian in terms of uh, my politics and my economics, but you know, socially very liberal, uh, but definitely not you know, woke or anything. Uh, I wish we could find someone centrist who's logically human, who doesn't have... Uh, dementia who can lead the country forward i i, I feel like um they're both terrible candidates um I, i'm amazed how emotional people got about two pretty flawed humans uh it made people stop thinking logically which is always dangerous i feel like people are all in their little stupid bubbles right now which makes them stop not see the big picture um you know there's some crazy things happening in terms of like censorship on the internet which are being driven by people sitting in their bubble and not willing to even accept the fact that other people have an opinion. Uh, you know, if you can't listen to the other side's view, then your view is by nature to be incorrect because you, you can't, you know, articulate what the other guy's thinking. And I think that's very dangerous, whether it's putting on a long trade and not knowing the short view or going out to vote and not knowing what the guy, the other guy's thinking. I just think it's kind of stupid. I wish people would take a deep breath and, you know, go back towards the middle. But I feel like Twitter and you know Facebook and social media and the news, they just keep pushing people further and further into the fringes. And it's just making people crazier and stupider. And I don't know what fixes it, but these things always go in cycles. You usually get stupider than you ever think it could get. And then it kind of goes back towards the middle. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's what you were looking for. I, I'm pretty disappointed by the whole election process. Uh, 
is really I'm, sad. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that was um, the exact answer. I don't know if I would have said it the exact same way, but very much the exact answer I, I would give. I think disappointment, and it's not disappointment because people stormed the Capitol. It's when I look at that, yeah, there's parts of that that are disappointing, but what's also disappointing is how the other side can't empathize with why that even happened. And to your point, there's just so much extremism and you have the, you know, the powers that be the, what seems to be very liberal social media that are reinforcing that. They're silencing the one side by at the same time making the other side feel like, you know, they, they won the, you know, intellectual battle, right? And, and they're far superior and, and their voice is the only one that matters. And, you know, my hope is that something from this extreme environment snaps people out of it. I, I don't want things to go bad, but to a certain extent, I'd, I'd like to, to see, you know, those who are all for getting rid of Trump and supporting Biden, primarily just to get rid of Trump, having a disappointing four years so that maybe they can step back and say, why do we keep doing this? Right. It's like the Einstein quote, you know, doing the same thing, expecting different results is a definition of insanity. And I, I feel like that's the world that we're in. I mean, career politicians are in it for themselves and the average guy is repeatedly getting screwed. And every four years, there's a new set of promises that never get delivered, no matter whether you're Republican or Democrat. And I'm making these statements as, as someone who's very libertarian and, and doesn't look for the government to provide me anything. But for a lot of the country, they tend to approach it very differently. And they just keep getting disappointed and, and left holding the bag while, you know, the people at the top keep getting richer. And to, to your point, I don't really know what the answer is. I don't, I don't know how we, we start listening to each other again and, and find our way more to the center. but. Um, I would agree overall, it's very disappointing. It's disappointing we can't have, you know, reasonable discourse about this. And, and it's certainly disappointing we can't put more intelligent, um, more grounded type of people in, in Capitol Hill. I think it's almost inevitable this gets a lot worse before it gets better. Um, I don't think that people can come towards the middle again until something really stupid happens. And, you know, I don't think it's civil war because that's just, not really what it's going to be, but it's going to be a lot of this uh, random violence. And, you know, much like, you know, all the liberal cities burned this summer and for a few hours, you know, the capital was a little crazy. I think these sort of things are going to flare up all over the place from time to time. And then they'll kind of flare down and they'll flare up. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people are going to end up dying for no real reason. Um, it's, it's just really stupid, but I think eventually you're going to need more stupid before people realize how stupid it is. And you know, that's just another reason why, you know, a lot of the macro trends I have in play are in play. You know, this summer we were, you know, we were very long uh, guns and ammo. It was a great trade for me because I felt like uh, this wasn't going to go away. And you know, if you look at like uh, firearm uh, checks, the NICS checks, uh, I mean, they're, they're still comping just straight up. Uh, you know, everyone's going by guns. It's, it's another great trend. Uh, Everyone's leaving cities because all the stupidity is going to happen in the city. Uh, I don't see anyone out protesting in the panhandle. You know, the homes are too far apart. You're not going to get anything done. No one's going to notice you. Everyone's going to protest in front of uh, the media. So 
you know, I, I think a lot of these trends, you just find a trend and a lot of these things, you know, like I said, you get multiple macro things that intersect in a single uh, company and you ride these trends. I mean, in the end, I'm not, I'm not here on the political side. I'm not a politician. I have one job and only one job, and that's to make my uh, investors money. But I don't know what the solution is. And, you know, as my grandpa used to tell me, sometimes there is no solution. You just kind of sit there and watch and stay out of the way. And that's what I've been trying to do. Maybe we'll wrap up with one last question in regards to that. With all that's going on and, and kind of the potential outlook that it gets worse before it gets better, Project Zimbabwe, a lot of the things that we've covered, do you think the American empire is under threat? Do you, do you think that um, you know, we, we lose the reserve currency status, we lose our position as the world power? Do, do you, in a longer macro view, do you think some of the things that are in play right now that you're clearly positioned for uh, become systemic issues? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if the, you know, you have the Chinese who are focused on global domination, I mean, as any country should, and there's a lot more of them than us. Uh, and they're focused on it, and we're focused on which pronoun to use when. And, you know, you, you just look at, you know, where people's attentions are, you know. You, you have us focused on shutting down businesses because of germs, and they're just going to ignore it because it's just not that bad. And, you know, you look at a lot of these things and you look at how they treat and how we're treating it, um, it's not good. <laughs> you know, America used to lead the rest of the world. And then we got kind of lazy and the rest of the world just listened to us because they just were kind of used to it for a while. And now the rest of the world's going to start saying, why are these guys doing it the way they're doing it? Because it makes no sense. And I think uh, a lot of the world, is, you know, is going to start looking at the Chinese and seeing what the progress they're making is. And they say, hey, these guys have a plan. And, you know, you, you can't just beat people up with the military. You need uh, kind of persuasion in a way. And I don't know. It, it, I'm kind of concerned. I mean, We've kind of lost our way here for a while, but we're so rich, it didn't really matter. And now it's going to start mattering eventually. Uh, I, I find it just incredible that, you know, both political parties, one of the few things they all agree on is infrastructure, for instance. Everyone knows that the bridges and tunnels and, you know, airports, like you go to Asia and the airports are brand new. They're beautiful. They all work. They're glass. I mean, go to LaGuardia. It's, it's, it's like rotting around you. Every time I fly in from somewhere in Asia and I land in LaGuardia, I, I, I feel like I went back 75 years in time because I just did. I think everyone agrees that this needs to be fixed if we want to be competitive in the world. Everyone agrees that the money's available, we just print it. What they can't agree on is which uh, factions, uh, you know, which, which lobbyists are going to get, which construction companies get a piece of it. So instead, nothing gets done. It's, it, everyone's so political and they're so tied up in making sure the other side doesn't have a win that you could have uh, the nation's infrastructure just rot around you and everyone kind of shrugs. And you know, until we get our shit in order and go back to leading a country, it, it, it's broken. And I don't see a lot of the guys who won this cycle even thinking in terms of those things. They, you know, they're, they're more focused on, you know, if it's a, what is it, a $600 handout or a $2,000 handout, and that doesn't fix infrastructure, that just buys you more Bitcoin, you know? But that, that, that's kind of why I own so much Bitcoin instead of infrastructure right now. And when they get serious about infrastructure, we're going to own infrastructure. Uh, and eventually, what will get them serious is that uh, there'll be a lot of really bad accidents with bridges collapsing and hurting people. Uh, that's usually what gets American politicians to finally agree to fix a problem, even though the problem is pretty obvious. And 
I, going back to your question, go to China, look at what they built for infrastructure. It's stunning. Uh, we have a lot of catch up to do here. And uh, they're now building infrastructure in a lot of other countries. We have a lot of catch up there too. So I don't know, it, it's, it doesn't look good, but these things happen gradual. And in you know my lifetime or my investment career, I think America still stays the leader just because things in motion stay in motion. Robbie, awesome, man. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I think everyone else will. And we'll leave it at that note with the U.S. needing to get its shit together and everybody else needing to sign up for KEDM, Cuppies Event Driven Monitor.com, um, KEDM.com. And again, man, thanks so much. Um, I'm looking forward to, as soon as it's done recording this, to go back and listen to it myself because there's a lot of little pieces here. Again, being around you quite a bit. It's always fun. It's always insightful, but um, you are very, very crystallized here and there's, there's uh, a lot to take away. So hopefully everybody enjoys it. Thanks for taking your time in. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's been great. Well, hopefully when, uh, soon. yeah, hopefully when things settle down, we'll, we might be having a drink together in Puerto Rico. We'll see. That sounds great. I'm looking forward. I'll see you then, Cuppy. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Money MBA podcast with your host, Jonathan Katsmita. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. To access more great content, visit us online at moneymba.com. That's where the money is. And more than that, control. There's only one person in the world to decide what I'm going to do, and that's me. And I am deadly serious about that. That's it. I'm done.